and good evening, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tectonic, live from WFMU, Freeform Station of the Nation. My name is Mark Hurst. I'll be your host for the next hour here for this episode, and I'm very happy that you've joined me. I have a great show for you this evening with Douglas Rushkoff. Now, some of you may know that Douglas Rushkoff was a host himself on WFMU many moons ago, and since then has gone on to start his own podcast, Team Human, which he has run for a number of years. And uh, he has just come out with a new book, which I think, if I read it right, I think this is number 20 (laughs) for Douglas. I think this is his 20th book. So he's he's a prolific writer and he was on the show not that long ago just a few years ago talking about his previous book that was called Team Human you can go back in the tectonic archives at wfmu.org to find that show or or on the tectonic site at tectonic.fm t e c h tonic.fm but today Douglas returns to talk about his newest book this is a book called Survival of the Richest Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. And if that title or that premise sounds a little bit familiar, uh, back in July of 2018, so this is over four years ago, Douglas posted something on the blogging site, Medium. Uh, He's got a Medium page or Medium blog there. And I still remember... <clears throat> reading this piece, it went viral, and it was and for good reason. It was a really interesting piece. The the medium piece, which I have linked on the playlist, um, is called "Survival of the Richest." Although it has a it has a, a, a different subtitle. Back in 2018, this medium piece had a subtitle of "The Wealthy Are Plotting to Leave Us Behind," and it's a it's a brief piece yeah again you can you can go and you can uh read it on medium.com it's um it's linked from the tectonic playlist if you go to wfmu.org and click playlists and comments you can see it there from july of 2018 but basically the the um the premise of that piece which i'll i'll give you a a high level summary of in in a moment that turned into this book a full-fledged book called survival of the richest that's just come out which I really enjoyed reading. You'll hear in the interview, I think uh, Douglas did a did an outstanding job of both filling out the story that he told in the Medium piece, but also connecting the dots to a lot of other things that are going on in the world. And frankly, a lot of the themes that I try to cover on this show are well represented uh, in this book. Just a, a, a readable and well-written book. I mean, all of Douglas's stuff is, is good, but I, I, I particularly enjoyed this book. Uh, so let me give you <clears throat> let me give you a high level summary of that medium piece so that you know the premise, because I'll just tell you now, the interview um, starts in the middle of things. <laughs> it's not going to start with the interview music. This is just how Douglas and I, when we get when we get on the phone or on a Zoom or whatever, we just pick up where we left off. And so. Uh, there's very little ceremony, so I I have to serve as the uh, segue here, um, which which I, I I thought was very charming, how the interview came out. Anyway, this this piece from 2018, survival survival of the richest. Douglas is telling a story from his professional co- career. Um, he doesn't give any names, no identifying details, but he said that a few years previous he had been invited to speak at a corporate event, some a private corporate event. Somewhere in the desert is all he said. I um, imagine that's the American desert, the American West, not like Saudi Arabia or something. So he's out in, I don't know where, somewhere in the American West, and he shows up at this uh, very corp- this, this paying gig, you know, to talk to corporate types. And it just turns out that it's these five guys who all come from the hedge fund world who are all billionaires. And Douglas will uh, will talk in the interview about the kinds of questions they ask, but but essentially, Douglas came away understanding that the ultra rich in this country, at least as represented by 
these these five guys. I don't mean to say all ultra rich, but there's a set of there's a subset of the ultra rich in this country, um, particularly in the tech field, and I guess in the finance field, who have a particular aim to understand how are they going to get out of dodge when things start to go bad, and it's never quite explained what the event might be that could precipitate their exit. Um, It could be climate change related. It could be social unrest. It could be economic in nature, um, or it could be, uh, frankly, interrelated, all those things. But what Douglas says in the Medium piece is it was just interesting to him to encounter these guys who had such wealth, such power, and really such potential to address some of the issues in in the country and in the world, which frankly, maybe some of them actually contributed to creating in the first place. And instead of mitigating their <coughs> their negative side effects, ne- negative um, outcomes of building their wealth, they instead are looking to deploy that for purely for self-protection for themselves and their families. And Douglas took a, a, a conceptual leap in this book, Survival of the Richest, which I think is, is spot on, which is to say that it's not just these five guys, and it's not just about building bunkers in New Zealand. This is really an ethos of the Silicon Valley and Wall Street elite in how they are approaching the economy as a whole and how they look upon the rest of us. Um, as I've said for years on this show, the, the the major issue that I try to cover on this show is not about left or right. It's not about uh, re- Republican versus Democrat. I mean, th- those issues do exist, but that's not the issue I'm trying to cover here. The issue that I think is much more urgent that faces all of us is is big tech versus the rest of us. And this book expresses that well with... with uh, history and uh, a lot more explanation than I often have time to to get into in this show. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play this interview um, between me and Douglas Rushkoff, and uh, and then we'll have some time afterwards to to talk about what it all means and maybe link it up to um, a, a thought or two I have about something I have seen recently in my own life. Um, so if you'd like to join in the live listener chat, you can go to WFMU.org, click playlist and comments. There's a discussion happening right now. And as I said before, this interview, uh, unlike uh, pretty much all my other interviews, this one is not going to start with the regular craftwork um, music. This is going to just dump us right in uh, because Douglas and I were in the middle of a conversation about purity and complicity in, in that we are all trapped in this in this system to different degrees. And so Douglas is, is uh, reacting to that. And I said, hey, do you mind if I start rolling? And so this is where it starts. So again, this is my interview with Douglas Rushkoff here on Tectonic on WFMU. You know, we are, we are all embedded in an environment where it's very difficult to live as we might want to. So I was walking with a friend last night and he was a little bit upset about how, you know, the founding fathers are all getting, you know, taken out of history because of their, um, you know, complicity or participation in slavery. And I said, you know, the interesting thing about it to me is, you know, when they look back on us right now, Let's say they look at Douglas Rushkoff, this kind of Marxist anarcho-syndicalist media theorist who nonetheless is using a Macintosh computer. And we know from his articles on Medium that he was fully aware that there was slave labor uh, involved in the getting the resources for it. And he threw out his old, his Mac you know, Pro 100 to get the Mac Pro 200. He know that went in a toxic waste dump where little South American children are picking over it. So... Isn't he and he bought at at Costco? We're taking his name off the good guys list too. I mean, aren't we participating in systems of, of slavery and abuse and pollution and climate? Yes. So it's hard to know, you know, and then you look all the way back, Abraham in the Bible, he had slaves. What 
you know, and 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 that's where the Isaac came from. Hagar came from, and it's like, well, that's horrible. And we say, oh, well, you know, for the time, that's what they did, and for our time, this is what we do. What if no? What if you? It's hard to know how we are complicit. And on one, on the one hand, I don't like that we are being blamed on the consumer level as individuals for everything that's going on in the world. Um, but on the other, it's like. Well, where does the buck stop? Who finally has the high leverage point? As as I discovered, the billionaires don't think they are are high leverage points in making these decisions. So, you know, someone else is going to have to make systemic change. Yeah. I mean, for me, this question comes up a lot on the show. Uh, and, and by the way, uh, Douglas Rushkoff, welcome back to Tectonic. <laughs> oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, we're yeah, allowed we, to just yeah, jump gonna, in, right? We, There's we, no we, rules we, here. We jumped right in. God bless. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, author of the book Survival of the Richest, speaking with Mark Hurst, one of my great uh, mentors and colleagues and compatriots on the journey toward trying to either make the world better with technology or make the world better without. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. I'm not sure who's hosting and who's being interviewed, but let's go with it. Um I loved yeah. this book, Survival of the Richest. The subtitle is Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, with fantasies being the operative word. It's not the tech plans yes. of the, uh, which everyone is like, how are they going to do it? How are they going to do it? I'm like, dude, look at the subtitle, Escape Fantasies. They're not hold really on, going. Hold on. We got to get yeah. back to, uh, I think, let me just say right off, Douglas, I have read several of your books over the years. You've written many books. You were on a few years ago talking about Team Human, your your previous book. I think this book, Survival of the Richest, is your best. I think it's your best yet yeah. because it boils down not just the, the predicament we're in, but where it came from, how technology and money conspired to create this, and some glimpses at a, at a better future. Maybe we can start with these fantasies of the tech billionaires. I know this is a story you've told yeah. a million times on other shows, but for anyone who didn't read your original piece that, that went viral, you got invited to the desert a few years ago to speak to some tech billionaires and answer some questions. What happened? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's that same that same uh, little equation, that balance we're talking about. You know, I tried to spend my time and energy helping real people, doing real things, and sometimes that gets subsidized by going and talking to rich people or business people about what they're doing. And in the process, I hope, um, you know, undermining some of their more evil ways and showing them alternatives. You know, when I go, they ask me one question. I try, always try to flip it to something else is what you really should be asking yourself is this. So, I mean, this was a whole lot of money. So I was like, all right, I'll go, even though they want me to talk about, you know, the digital future. So they know what to bet on. And I go to this place and I'm in the equivalent of a green room. And instead of bringing me out on the stage, they bring these five guys into the green room. They sit around this table and start asking me basic investment questions, you know, Bitcoin or Ethereum. Uh, virtual reality or augmented reality, all that. And then finally, one guy says, uh, um, Alaska or New Zealand. You know, he wants to know where to put his bunker. And the and the whole rest of the time was spent on these kind of walking dead-like questions. The main one being, how do I maintain control of my security force after my money is worthless? Which is kind of the main question of their lives, you know, because they've spent... You know, they they've pivoted every technology they're using towards the extraction of wealth from humans and very often the externalization of harm, externalization of harm to humans, the environment and animals and everybody else. Um, and they're wondering, well, how is that one? How does this one end? You know, because they've they've all built so many businesses based on the premise of an exit strategy that, of course, there's one big exit strategy at the end of everything, you know, and they're billionaires, but they're not quite rich enough. And, and, and they're too smart to, to believe that they could actually go to Mars 
in their own lifetimes or actually upload their brains to a silicon wafer and have any sense of continuity um they they know that so they're thinking more in terms of you know uh, uh you know going out on the water being an aquapreneur and seasteading or having a, a a compound in new zealand maybe not as big as peter Thiel's, but next to his um you know and, and how would that all work out and i was trying to tell them it really doesn't but I, I finally answered their question with you know the way to make sure your head of security doesn't kill you in the bunker is to pay for his daughter's bat mitzvah today Right? Because when he's got you in his sights and he looks at that face and he realizes, ah, oh, that guy paid for my daughter's bat mitzvah, it's hard. But the, the real idea was, you know, if you're nice to people now, you won't have to go to a bunker later. They're not going to be coming after you with pitchforks. If you if you did your business and ran your technology differently, then you wouldn't necessarily be creating the scenario that you're imagining coming to pass. And it's funny. I just read, you know, our, our dear friend, Cory Doctorow. Yeah wrote a piece about Epson printers and he did all this investigation and he found out that Epson printers of a certain model are pre-programmed to brick themselves after a certain number of pages. And he, you know, talked to the company and the, the excuse they have is that there's some little sponge in the machine that by that many pieces of paper, it may have absorbed as much extra ink as it can. And there is some risk that the printer will spill or drip some ink on your on the surface that it's sitting on. So rather than showing here, just replace this little sponge. No, we're going to brick your whole printer. It's not repairable or replaceable. You're going to have to dump it and we'll make you another one. So who is it at the company making that decision? It's some dude, right? Who's sitting there and in his head, he knows anybody alive today knows this is a bad thing I'm doing, right? Not just for the customers, but this printer is going to go sit on a toxic waste dump somewhere and do bad, at least for my grandchildren, if there's such a thing. And it's bad that we have to extract more metals and plastic and crap from the ground to make a new printer for that person. To Even if we 3D print the printer or 3D print the 3D printer, printing a 3D printer, whatever. It's still, there's resources coming from somewhere to do that. But in his head, he's thinking, you know, I and my family are going to make more money by doing this than it's going to cost me on the other end. And what I'm here to say is no, actually, you can't make a car that drives fast enough to escape from its own exhaust. You can't you can't outpace your own karmic debt forever. That, and it's not even karmic, it's actual debt, that, that, that you do have to pay the piper at some point. And we're at that point. This is it. You're looking at it. You're soaking in it. You know, it's not the future moment. We are in the climate emergency. We are in the social, political. We are in the economic emergency. This is it. You're in it. So what's your choice now? You know, do you really have to play it? You know, that Thomas Jefferson way, he has that famous quote about slavery where he said he didn't want to be a slave owner anymore, but he said, it's like having a wolf by the ears. I love that quote. It's like <laughs> having a wolf by the ears, you know, that is, how do you let go of it? Right. So instead you just bear down and, and, and kick it some more. It's like, no, let go. You gotta, you gotta let go. You write about in this book, Survival of the Richest, about something you call the mindset. And yeah. mind, mindset there is capitalized. And you write that the mindset is something where, quote, winning means earning enough money to insulate yourself from the damage you're creating. And speaking of these tech billionaires, you say it's as if they want to build a car that goes fast enough to escape from its own exhaust, as you just brought up. Um, you go on to say that this mindset, which is endemic to Silicon Valley and and throughout the highest levels of the tech industry and even into finance right now, you say the mindset is based on a staunchly atheistic and materialistic scientism, a faith in technology to solve problems, uh, an understanding of human relationships as market phenomena, something to buy and sell, a fear of nature and women, which you dive into a little more later in the book, a need to see one's contributions as utterly unique innovations without precedent, and an urge to neutralize the unknown by dominating and de-animating it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's an old 
impulse, you know, and I, I mean, you could trace it back who knows how far, but I just traced it back to Francis Bacon and the birth of empirical science. And there's this famous quote that's attributed to him. And although it may not be him, it's certainly of his ilk where, where he says, um, that, that empirical science will let us take nature by the forelock, hold her down, and submit her to our will. So it's essentially a rape fantasy for uh, uh, said that they're going to be able to control nature pretty much by quantifying everything. You know, so the the idea is to is to kind of reduce all that scary, unpredictable, unknown stuff and women and animals and soil and mushrooms and the forest and you know to reduce all that down so it's less uh less scary to them you know and that whole effort really dovetails so well with the agenda of capitalism and colonialism how do you go to a new world and repress its people and enslave all those you know all those others and take their resources and contain nature and prevent revolts and you know so it, it and extract value from humans and nature and places and just turn it into numbers turn it into capital you know so that's been going on you know colonialism and 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 uh, uh, imperialism all the way through the industrial age but with digital, it kind of went meta on itself a little bit. So with digital, you could do it in one sense, you could do it at greater remove because you've got, you know, uh, you know, digital, you know, remoteness and all, you know, it's sort of more like drone warfare, if you will. But digital is also it's this ultimate symbol system. Digital is not real. It's not terra firma. It's not condition on the ground. It's a symbol system. So what you end up with are all these businesses and technologies that are busy converting the real world into digital symbols. I mean, Bitcoin is the ultimate example of that, where we're literally burning the planet to prove our faith in a digital representation of something. It's like converting uh, it. One thing to take a vinyl LP and convert it into a MP3. It's another to take the musician and kill them and turn them, you know, into an MP3, which is sort of where, where it's gotten. And that's all, yeah, I mean, it's all, you know, what I'm calling the mindset is this belief that you really can outrun it, that you can take Stuart Brand at his word when he says, you know, we are as gods and we may as well get good at it, you know, that you are a god, one level above the mere mortals, that you are like Peter Thiel, you've gone from zero to one, and you exist one order of magnitude among all the others that you believe you take Richard Dawkins at his word that we are just the products of selfish genes. We're not even truly alive or truly conscious. And then that's why Richard or, or, or Jeffrey Epstein would want Richard Dawkins on his plane, because here's a guy who's helping Epstein justify his kind of eugenic approach to life where it's really OK for me to put 50 teenagers in a dormitory so they can i can impregnate each one of them and they can bear the epstein seed and and you know and and, and incubate my my master race i mean because if all we are is genes selfish genes then why not just spread your genes didn't you uh have a conversation with daniel dennett along these lines that you write about in the book well, it was Dawkins, actually, where, oh, I mean, Dawkins. a lot of the others, you know, the other, it was one of the of those John Brockman parties. He has this thing called The Edge, which is a bunch of scientists who, you know, The Edge was really created for scientists to feel culturally cool. It was like, look, why are the poets and the liberal arts people and the musicians and all the, why are they getting all the girls? You know, is it, a scientist can be sexy too. So sort of this effort to make science a culture, which I sort of appreciated as a nerd. Um, so I, I'm the young guy. It was me and Jason Calacanis are like the only sort of young people at this thing because he was the other tech guy. You know, he was like the young tech business guy, and I was kind of the young tech artsy guy. So we would get invited to a lot of stuff because we were the future. You know, we're in our 20s at that point. And um, we got invited to this party. And, and you know, Richard Dawkins is there talking about memes. 
Um, and I had written about memes in my own book, Media Virus, but differently, you know, and I was all for how um, how memes can express these sort of uh, underlying repressed cultural agendas, you know, that that and I was much more into how human beings express. And he was really explaining that human beings are just passive, like passive robots playing whatever memes their genes, you know, will, 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 will play that we are just, you know, that, that, that the memes are the real software, the real there, if anything has agency, it's them. And we're just like the cassette player or the, the MP3 player, we're the iPods, we're nothing. And, and I was arguing, you know, what if something's going on here? What if, you know, people have souls? What if there's a, souls, you know, and they're all laughing at me, you know, and I said, well, I take soul out of it, but what if there's something, what if, consciousness precedes matter? What if the universe is um, an effort towards? What if we're leaning in a certain direction? And they they, they called me a moralist. And so they said, ah, oh, you're a moralist. That was their way of dismissing me. And um, it was funny, you know, because then what, 20, 30 years later, you know, the guys who are calling me a moralist are photographed on Jeffrey Epstein's plane, the Lolita Express, you know, getting carted out to Esalen or islands, wherever they go. And it's like, okay, I'm the moralist and you guys are what? I don't even <laughs> want to use the word, right. but uh, not a good thing. And we're back. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. We are halfway through my interview with Douglas Rushkoff, himself a former WFMU host. Now he is the host of his own podcast called Team Human and was on the show a couple of years ago talking about his book, Team Human. But this time he's talking about his newest book, which I liked a lot, called Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. We're having a good discussion on the comment board. If you'd like to join in, go to WFMU.org and click playlist and comments. Or in the future, if you go to tectonic.fm, T-E-C-H tonic.fm you can find the October 3rd 2022 playlist and read through the comments and links there let's go ahead and listen to the second half of my interview with Douglas Rushkoff here on Tectonic on WFMU I appreciated in this book that you gave some historical context that was, um, well, relevant to you and me. We've been around the uh, internet for a long time and remember the dot-com boom and bust quite vividly. And you write about how the original utopian visions of the internet, especially in the 1990s, brought about by people like John Perry Barlow, turned out to be flimsy to outright false. You're right. We didn't realize that banishing government from the internet would create a free zone for corporate colonization. We hadn't yet discovered that government and business balance each other out. I liked this part. A bit like <laughs> fungus and bacteria in the body. <laughs> Get rid of one and the other runs rampant. And what we're seeing now, why that's so relevant is if what we're seeing now is totalizing corporate colonization. You have four, depending on how you count, four or five companies in tech with their Wall Street partners running the economy and running roughshod over media, entertainment, um, name and healthcare, name and industry. Back in the 1990s, I wish we had had this book to warn us away from believing too much in what utopian prophets like Barlow were saying. Well, you know, I did write a book in, in 99 called Coercion, Why We Listen to What They Say, where I was arguing that if we just port the influence techniques and the, the, the behavioral economics techniques that we already know in the real world to the digital world, where algorithms will be able to reconfigure themselves based on our reactions in real time, that we are going to create some really perverted extreme versions of human behavior. And that was in 99. And the only one who listened to me back then, who really, who put me on their friggin' show was um, Bill O'Reilly, of all people. 
It's interesting, you know, it's interesting who who was thinking, you know, because now it's sort of Bannon and their fear of the technocracy and all, you know, on the one level, they're right. You know, it is a technocracy. I mean, no, none of their claims are true. The Great Reset can't happen the way people are afraid and no one can put nanobots in your in your vaccines. But the the thematic terror is is pretty is pretty is pretty true. And even the end of my first book, Siberia, which I finished that book in 1993, right after Wired, it had its first couple of issues. And I said, uh, at the end there, I was talking about Mondo 2000 and this cyberdelic culture that we were moving into. And uh, and I said, but, you know, there's a new kid on the block, Wired Magazine. And if they are able, I said this, if they are able to successfully reframe the digital renaissance as a business revolution, then, whoa, Nelly, look out. You know, this is going to be a very different thing than than we're imagining. And we've got to keep this being about, you know, uh, uh, expressing the human agenda in the 21st century, not a business agenda. And, and of course, they didn't listen. And that was the whole problem. That was why I wanted to swear off doing talks for these companies, because every time I'd go in, I would say, no, no, don't do it. Don't go. You know, Leo Burnett, this big advertising agency hired me to do a talk. And I said, I'll do a talk for you if I can talk about anything I want. And they said, sure, it's just come. And so I called my talk, why you should quit your job at Leo Burnett. <laughs> and I did a whole thing on it. Two people quit, um, but the rest of them were amused, I guess. And, you know, just figured it was a good way of folding in the the grunge, you know, slacker agenda into the next generation of of advertising. I mean, even poor Matt Groening with The Simpsons. You got to wonder, did The Simpsons do more good for unleashing a generation of cowabunga slacker kids, or did it do more bad by funding the birth and and early unprofitable uh, generations of Fox News? Hard to know. <laughs> well, let's talk more about where we have ended up. I liked I liked how you put it. You have some great summaries of issues and uh, developments that we're facing. This is one of them about data. You write, we are each becoming more valuable as data than we are as real world consumers. The companies behind our activity trackers and exercise apps often make more money off our data than off making us healthier. And then you give this great example, which is completely true. And I'm glad you put this in. You're right. Our social networks can make tremendous profit off of a teenage girl's data profile, even if the platforms themselves make that girl more likely to self-harm or worse. The cloud does not care. The teenage girl has ceased to be a girl. She has become pure, abstracted data. I thought, what a great analysis and example because we can take that example of the teenage girl who the cloud is happy to nudge into self-harm or worse as you say we can apply that pattern to all of us to the entire society the cloud that is enriching a very very vanishingly small group of people is now monetizing the harm to us as individuals as communities and to our ecosystems yeah that's the interesting thing to me about um, like Zuckerberg and the metaverse, you know, so Facebook reaches its peak, you know, it's, it's just like AOL in 99. It reached its subscriber peak, the public opinions turning against it. So he goes meta, right? Oh, it's going to be web three. It's meta. It's this cloud place. So now not only is the teenage girl's data profile up there, but this kind of, legless version of her is going to float around in a virtual space. But what happens there ends up trumping whatever happens here. It's just like your, your FICO score decides what house you get it in. Everything that goes on in the cloud, in the, in the data, ends up determining what you have here because the number systems, it's like, a, it's like we used to have a legal system that controlled people and now we're going to have uh, a technocracy that does that, that determines way too much, which is why then I start feeling like the only real solution is to do as much as you can in the real world with other, with other people. I mean, they're, they're, you know, first they came for the yeah. cab drivers. Right? Yeah. 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 
Sure. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't say anything. I'm not a cab driver, although I did say something. But um, you know, now it's now it's it's everything. And if we are more valuable as data than as people, then it's really interesting. The 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 matrix almost had it, but it's not like the battery power of the people that they would be extracting. It would be the novelty that they're extracting because that's what human beings can come up with: novelty, with data, with new. Uh, that's what they. That's what the uh, the the robot AIs would want from us, and that's what what capitalism would want from us. Except, capitalism is not looking for novel forms. Capitalism is is loath for novel forms. That's really that's the flip that happened in the internet. You know, when we first got involved in the net, what was exciting about it is it was going to unleash the new unbridled possibilities of a collective creative organism what's it gonna do where are we gonna go the unknown was why it was so sexy and once the investors came they don't like the unknown they don't like the unpredictable they're betting on the future so they want the most predictable outcomes you can get so instead of using technology to unleash new potentials, we started to use technology to restrict new potentials. Instead of giving people technology to do weird things, we started using technology on people so they would do less weird things, more predictable things. And that's what the whole system is trained to do, is to is to narrow us, you know, is to is to narrow us. And once our actions are completely predictable, then just replace us with an algorithm, you know, at that point. And and I don't know what you do with the human after that, you know, hope they go away. Well, you plug them into whatever the latest addictive video game platform is. Hopefully we'll be fully VRized by then. They'll be in the metaverse and it'll be like the end of Soylent Green. People just plugged into fantasy environments. In fact, they're starting to do that already in um, senior citizen homes. I mean, it doesn't sound so bad on some level if it was good. Like if they told me when I was 14, would you like a world where you can play Joust, Donkey Kong, and, and Adventure forever? And Load Runner, maybe. I might have said yes. You know what I mean? I might have been like, oh, that'd be cool. But I barely knew about sex yet. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't. So it's like so bad. But, but you know, what some of these tech technologists I talk to, these, you know, the, the, the young tech billionaires, they look at the, the, the landscape of Ready Player One and say, that's pretty good. You know, stack them up, stack them up and plug them in. And at least when they're on my platform, they're going to have a good time because climate change is coming. There's not going to be enough food, all these other things, but at least when they're plugged in, they'll, they'll feel okay about, well, you know, their Lyme I, disease. I, I got to break in that you're, you're referring to a recent novel, ready player one by Ernest Klein that starts with people living in shipping containers in this desert wasteland, you know, within the ravages of climate change and everyone's plugged into VR headsets where they get to virtually zoom throughout this metaverse type world and play Joust. Actually, Joust does have a central role in the plot of of the book, not so much the terrible movie that Spielberg made, but the the pretty good book. Um, And he tried. Spielberg tried. And the interesting thing about Spielberg's movie is he made it a, a an homage to 1970s and 80s media. Yeah, what was we did not need The Shining in that movie. I know. It's but The Shining no, but The Shining was a had nothing to do with Holter guys. He Steven Spielberg, but very few people know this. He look at the room number in the motel at the end of Poltergeist that the family goes into. Oh, is it from The Shining? It's yeah, from oh, The okay. Shining. It's yeah. the hotel room number. Right. Poltergeist is a response to The Shining. I so see. Kubrick in The Shining deconstructs in horror the American family. And in Poltergeist, Steven Spielberg tries to reassemble the family because all of Spielberg's movies are about divorced families that kind of get back together, you know, or some trouble, they they, they yeah. reestablish families. So it's sort of his ghost story to bring the family back together, even though he didn't direct it. I think it was um, um, Tobe Hooper or somebody directed it. I forgot who, but um, he produced it. Um, so it's really an interesting conversation. But filmmakers were different then. They were having a conversation. It was like the letters you would see in journals in the 18. 18- it was a whole. It was another world. But anyway, 
um, yeah, he said that Ready Player One as a movie um, undermined the purpose of that first brilliant novel. I got one last um, interesting contrast that I want to float to you and see what you say about this. Here we are talking about the early web, the dot-com boom and bust, and then web two, and now web three, and the metaverse, and VR, and all of the possibilities of, of future technology. And all of our conversations stemmed off of this stack of dead tree that I've got my hand right here. And you have mm-hmm. this funny aside in the book about halfway through, you s- said something about no one reads books anymore except for you. Mm-hmm. And I kind of laughed at that because I know I've seen the statistics, I've read the news about you know book reading and long form literacy. So you're spending however long it took to write this book you're on a book tour now for this book, and yet you seem optimistic about these technologies in the future that are going to take us even further away from people wanting to read books. Well, you read it, so that was enough. You <laughs> no, know what I mean? I... It's like it's people buy books, so they don't read them. It's like hard. That's why I made it so short and so friendly and so funny and so story-like. It was like... Let's let's make this not one of these. You know what I mean? Everybody writes these polemics now. You know, everybody's guns, germs, and steel light. And I'm like, you know, and this was a really smart literary agent who said, Doug, you know, your ideas are great, but people respond to stories. And I was like, you know, what the heck? I'm at the end of career now. I'm just going to tell all. I was in a room with these billionaires. I was hanging out with Stephen Dawkins, Richard Dawkins. I, this is what Pinker says. This is the guy. You know, I'm just going to do this. Is, this is the, the absurd life that I've lived as I've watched these technologies be used against humans. Um, no, I'm still optimistic. I mean, these devices are amazing. They do wonderful things. Look at us talking this way from far away. Although actually it would be nice when we could be, we're close enough. We could be in the same room, actually just holding little SM58s into a zoom and talking or into a Panasonic cassette recorder and get almost the same quality, at least analog. Um, it'd be fine. So in some ways, they give us an excuse to not. But that that said, you could be anywhere and I could be anywhere and we get to connect like this and it's beautiful. But the real world is also is coming apart. And the people who are making these screens that we're seeing each other on not only know they're the cause, but mean to escape the coming catastrophe. And that our last best hope is to double down on this and apply even more technocratic totalizing solutions to the world. But that said... If we looked at technology in this really radical, strange, I get it, this is a hippie, idealistic way. But if we said, what do people need and how could technology be developed to fulfill and meet those needs? Wow. Um, We are so close to such a workable thing. You know, if we could say, okay, look, the main reason we need oil is because there's an oil industry that's demanding we do it, or because we keep building our infrastructure in a way that's dependent on it. If 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 we could reverse the cart and the horse and just say, wait a minute, what do we need here? Um, you know, people get upset when I argue, well, what if instead of buying 10 minimum viable product lawnmowers on our block, what if we bought one good lawnmower and shared it? People get upset with that and they say, well, yeah, what happens to the lawnmower company? (laughs) Right. Well, what? Oh, so you're saying if we had that, then we wouldn't need to do as much work. We wouldn't need to take as much plastic and we wouldn't need to have as many enslaved people. We wouldn't need to have as much pollution. And the problem is that those stock dividends that someone's depending on don't, that doesn't work anymore. Oh, So the reason we build the things and sell the things is not because people need them, but because we are enslaved by an economic model whose balance sheets demand that in order to pay back banks, this abstract. That's the silliness. That's the insanity that we've got to undo if, you know, we want to keep going. But, you know, we're, we're not at the limits of our physical environment. We are not even close. We are at the limits of a 13th century balance sheet's ability to track, um, to track and profit off human activity. 
I'm I'm with you, Douglas. I just think that I like the idea of using these screens for good, developing technology for good. Um, but and only using it really for good. It's like and and then really evaluating when are we using this and and when shouldn't we be? When you throw kids in a third grade classroom and give them each one an iPad, it's like wait a minute. You know, these are kids who can't even make eye contact and are afraid to talk in class and don't know how to socialize and can't run a meeting. Is the iPad the best thing to do with their time? That right. little bit of time that they are not going to be on their own <laughs> smartphones? Right. You know, no, of course not. I mean, and that's this is not that's why I keep saying this is not rocket science. This is this is pretty easy and it's going to happen one way or the other. You know, we're going to end up off our screens one way or the other. What is your theory of change and how would you like it to happen? You know, you can meet your neighbors today, learn to share today while things are plentiful or learn to share tomorrow because you don't have anything. On that note, Douglas, <laughs> <laughs> what a choice. Well, uh, and I'll say you can either get interested in reading paper books now or you can wait until internet access and the devices start uh, failing intermittently. and right. uh, Or you could listen to an audio book of Survival of the Richest, read by the author <laughs> in my mellifluous tones. The book is Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires by my longtime friend and repeat tectonic guest, Douglas Rushkoff. Thanks so much for being back on the show. Thank you for having me as a repeat tectonic guest. I love that. <laughs> I'm going to keep saying that. Repeat tectonic guest. Repeat tectonic guest. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Tectonic on WFMU. My name is Mark Hurst. I will be your host for the remaining 12 minutes of the broadcast, after which I'd like you to stay tuned for Dust on the Decks with Derek and the subsequent great programming on this greatest of all radio stations. We just heard my interview with, as I said, longtime friend, past WFMU host and a past guest on this show, Douglas Rushkoff, who has written his, I believe, 20th book, one that I liked a lot, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We had a good conversation on the comment board at WFMU.org, still going on if you'd like to join in. And uh, thanks for those listeners who added into the chat some pointers uh, to other reading, to related reading. Um, I want to say something schedule-wise. As a, as a, <laughs> how's that for a segue? Now that, um, now that we have fully covered uh, Douglas's excellent book, I need to just acknowledge that this show is on the first. Monday of October. And as in past years, uh, some of you know that Tectonic just passed its five-year anniversary. So this is the, I guess it must be the sixth time we're going into the October fundraiser, which is an annual fundraiser that WFMU puts on just to help uh, help tide the station over uh, through to the end of the year and into the early months of the year when uh, we'll start planning for the, the big uh, fundraising marathon, which is in the spring. So this, you're not going to hear a bunch of pitches um, for the October fundraiser. We don't have a, a, a phone bank, so there's no phone number. But we do, I just want to mention that we have two new t-shirts just for people who are pitching in for this October fundraiser. <clears throat> and if you go to the, if you go to the uh, playlist at WFMU.org, you can see these. I've, I've uh, pasted in a graphic showing both of these T-shirts. 
I'm planning on getting both of these. Uh, these, these, in my opinion, these these are keepers. <laughs> the The first one is called the Radio Bear Reprint T-shirt. This is a reprint of a design from, I believe, 2010, uh, designed by uh, Jerry Todd, and it shows a very happy bear. <coughs> excuse me, walking towards the transmitter somewhere in. Um, I, I, I'm not sure where, maybe, maybe it's East Orange or maybe it's Mount Hope. <laughs> so that's the Radio Bear reprint t-shirt. And then on the right side, we've got a glow-in-the-dark t-shirt, brand new t-shirt designed by Emily Baldessara. And the title of this shirt is WFMU No Matter What. And uh, this is, it shows um, a little boombox uh, by the water on some broken concrete and it's got, it's got a very apt note uh, taped to it, instructing everyone to keep it tuned to WFMU no matter how bad it gets. <laughs> so this is also classic, a new classic WFMU t-shirt. And uh, this is your chance to get one or both, if you'd like, of these two t-shirts. And what you do is you go to the playlist and I have a link on the playlist that says, click here to donate to WFMU. Frankly, you can use any uh, pledge widget you see on the station, but the one on my playlist does credit Tectonic with, uh, with your donation. Although you can remove that or you can add other shows if you want. It's really up to you. And uh, 50 bucks will get you one of the shirts. 100 bucks will get you both of them. And as always, uh, the best way to support the station is to join our monthly Swag for Life program. That's where people chip in 10 bucks or more per month. And um, that's just a way that the station can, uh, can get some reliable monthly income. Sorry, I had to clear my throat. So uh, that's the pitch. If you'd like to chip in, I'd really appreciate it. And by the way, if you're already in Swag for Life, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate it. Everyone at the station really deeply appreciates uh, your generosity. And this is an opportunity. If you want to chip in more, you can. Or if you're someone who has not chipped in before, this is a great entry point uh, to begin donating. Or just chip in something one time. And make it a one-off to WFMU. So again, go to, go to the uh, click here to donate to WFMU. Or you can click the Pledge Now button at the top of the playlist. And... Thank you so much. Um, this, by the way, you guess this, it's the October fundraiser. So we're going to be making a pitch on Tectonic every Monday this month. But I am not going to make the pitch next week because station manager Ken Friedman is going to be filling in for me. Thanks very much to Ken for, for uh, agreeing to do that. I'm looking forward to hearing his show. <clears throat> and... Um, I know that he's going to make an amazing pitch for the station in, in that little uh, pitch break uh, next week. So don't miss Ken Friedman's guest host of Tectonic next week. Finally, in the last couple of minutes I, th that I have, I, as promised, I want to mention one thing that I saw recently that fits into what Douglas Rushkoff was talking about and what his, what his book, Survival of the Richest, really covers. And that is, um, I happened to watch a documentary on Netflix. And as I have said many times, this is not me advocating for you to go and start paying Netflix money. Go uh, legally to uh, a friend's house and watch this documentary with them if they have a Netflix account. Um, however, however you can uh, legally get access to this documentary, I'd recommend it. The documentary is called Downfall. <clears throat> Excuse me, Downfall, the case against Boeing. And uh, some of you may know this story. Some of you probably have watched the documentary already. I thought, and it's directed by Rory Kennedy, I thought this was really an outstanding um, directorial job. It's, it's difficult to tell such a complex story <clears throat> with, um, with a through line and, and and with clarity, keeping keeping the uh, viewers engaged and informed uh, throughout what is it about ninety or hundred minutes, and this this documentary downfall really delivered. It tells the story of the seven three seven Max, this um, 
this this tragic uh, there were two tragic uh, plane crashes, one in Indonesia and one in Ethiopia, um, due to the faulty design, Boeing's faulty design, and it's 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 just parts of it honestly are heartbreaking because it it interviews um, the family members from some family members from both crashes and especially the the second crash when it it came out that Boeing leadership knew what the problem was <clears throat> behind the first crash and they kept the plane in the air anyway and then there was a second crash and all those lives could have been saved if the leadership had shown just just the 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 smallest smallest whisper of ethics or backbone, um, but unfortunately, the leadership of of Boeing and the the documentary really again it's, it does an excellent job of unrolling this and showing what the motivations are. It shows that the the senior leadership of Boeing uh, appeared to have been motivated by much the same mindset that Douglas Rushkoff writes about in Survival of the Richest, which is all to say this is not just the big tech CEOs and their VC partners and the Wall Street uh, hedge fund guys. And, and it's not just tech and finance. This is a mindset that has infected much of American business. And certainly the, uh, the examples shown in downfall of what happened within Boeing suggest that the mindset is very much at work w within senior leadership at Boeing, which um, still... I I I think they they did get fined two and a half billion dollars, uh, but they the leadership finally agreed to pay that um, with the understanding that Boeing would not face criminal charges for the uh, criminal uh, uh, lack of ethical work um, once the design flaws became known and really the. The reason the design flaws were there in the first place, this MCAS system that was all tuned to one single sensor rather than uh, two sensors that, that should always be used, all, all of it came back to cost cutting. That Boeing leadership, um, and this is, this is against the wishes of the engineers, the leadership which had turned into this financializing crew that, that uh, absented themselves to Chicago away from Seattle, uh, they were in their financial tower in Chicago. They were making these cost-cutting decisions with no regard for the engineers' wishes or indeed the safety of their passengers. And it's really enraging and heartbreaking. And it's a really good reminder of um, the forces at work in our economy right now, which is very much in line with what Douglas and I were talking about. That's all the time I have for this week. Thanks again, everybody, for being with me. Really appreciate it. If you want to reach me with a comment, I'm at mark at wfmu.org. That's M-A-R-K at wfmu.org. Um, and uh, you are listening to the greatest radio station in the world, WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope in New York City and Rockland County at 91.9 FM and online at wfmu.org. Until next time, friends, you know what to do. Avoid Amazon and Apple. Forget Facebook. And whatever you do, get off Google. Have a good couple of weeks, everybody. See you soon.
FMU listeners, this is Derek Peter with Dust on the Decks. Old time, country, ballads, folk, everything in between. That was G.A. Griffin with a Lomax Florida field recording of Bury Me Not on the Lone Prairie. Coming up next, we've got another Lomax recording that I'm partial to. This is by Dick Deval, sitting at my window, sad and lonely. Here we go. Well, the cowboy singer from Reed, Oklahoma, gonna sing you a little ditty. Look out, here she comes. Sitting at my window, sad and lonely, thinking of thee. I think of you, little girl, and wonder if you ever think of me. Don't forget me, little darling. Don't forget me of the past. Don't forget me, little darling. I'm the one that loves you best. You may meet with brighter faces. They may tell you I'm not true. But remember, little darling, none can love you as I do. You may meet with brighter faces. They may tell you I'm not true. But remember, little darling, none can love you as I do. You may meet with brighter faces floating down life's rugged stream. But remember, little darling, you are always in my dreams. I was born in the East Virginia, North Carolina, I did go. There I met this Oh, her 
blooming in the mountains far away and I fancy I can see her growing fairer day by day there are many flowers blooming but with her they can't compare in the valleys of the mountains there's not one that blooms so fair I am always dreaming of her and my heart it overflows dear old moon please guide me homeward to my old dark mountain road And she sang, I love you truly, meet the light of southern stars. It was springtime in the mountains, every soft recite her name, and the snowflakes now are falling. My rose blooms on just the same I am always dreaming of her And my heart it overflows Dear old moon, please guide me homeward To my old dark mountain road Listening to Dust on the Decks. This is Derek Peter. You just heard Ozark Mountain Rose from a terrific compilation put out by the wonderful Dust to Digital label, Haas Hair Pullers and Corn Dodgers, Arkansas at 78 RPM. It's delicious. 